There you go. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the well here at STSA. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Steve, and it is a great privilege to be here during this uh, Substitute Teacher Month, as I like to call it here at the well, where we get to hear from a lot of different speakers, and I always love coming to share some thoughts with you guys uh, for a few minutes, and especially this year, we're talking about a topic that I believe you can drive up and down the D.C. area and you won't find more than a handful of churches that are able to talk about what we're talking about. That I believe this church and this church's mission uniquely positions ourselves to talk about what we're talking about over these last couple weeks. You see, this church's mission is what? To bring an ancient faith into a modern world. And that's why we can talk about what we've been talking about over the last couple weeks, which is all of these modern trends and modern fads that have risen up that are actually rooted in ancient church teachings. Who else can teach you that? But see, the last couple weeks I've been listening to the wonderful speakers, and I wanted to make it clear that we're not anti the new trends. Like we're not anti these things. We're just showing how these things really aren't new. They're just rooted in old things. So in order to show you that we're not anti new trends, I participated in a new trend this week that I want to share with you guys. Who knows what the face app challenge is? Oh, God is right, okay? <laughs> okay, the face app challenge is this app that was created by these Russian hackers to steal all of our data, okay? And basically what it does is you take a picture of yourself, and then it shows how you look, like 50 years from now, okay? So they, you, you take a picture of your face, and then it projects how you're going to look 50 years from now. Let me give you an example. <laughs> this is me in 50 years. Now, I expect everyone here after the talk to find my wife and tell her how lucky of a woman she will be in 50 years, okay? That's a bright future ahead of her, okay? Now, just to show you, this also works on children, and this has nothing to do with the talk. This next picture is really just my gift to you guys, okay? I thought this was hysterical, so I'm just sharing it with you guys. This is my two-year-old son, Eli using the face app challenge. <laughs> Tell me that's not the coolest guy at the senior citizen home, okay? Who doesn't want to party with that guy at the old folks home, okay? We're not anti-new trends here, okay? What we're really talking about is there are a bunch of stuff that's risen up that are popular and new, and a lot of us are going towards it, but really, when you look at it, the church has been screaming these same things for years and thousands of years, and we just ignore it. And then the more and more I thought about it, this has actually personally started to really bother me. And the more I started thinking about it, it was personally bothering me, because I'm actually dealing with something recently that has risen up that I have to get off my chest. Okay, that was my two-year-old. I also have a five-year-old. And my five-year-old recently has decided that I, his dad, I'm not the coolest person in the world anymore. I know, it's shocking. I know, you guys are looking, I know, it's completely shocking. He's crazy. He's decided that I'm not the coolest guy in the world anymore, and he doesn't want to listen to me anymore, which I figured is normal, you know, he's, he's you know, five going on 15. I totally get that, and I appreciate that. But then I was surprised when I, decided, when I, I learned that he listens to Michaela, the cute girl at school, that me and Michaela can say the same thing in the same voice with the same instruction, and all of a sudden when I say it, it's, yeah, he's an old fart. He doesn't know what he's talking about. But Mikhail, I'll give you an example. It can be 10 degrees outside. I say, hey, Mateo, 
yeah, you should grab a jacket. Ah, oh, Dad, you're not just talking about. You're old. You're boring. You don't know. Michaela comes by and says, hey, I love that jacket. Dad, we need to order seven more jackets right now, okay? He comes out of the house wearing 15 jackets. That bothers me. The more I thought about it, isn't that what we do with the church? Is the church has been screaming things for years, years, saying, hey, do this, hey, do this. We say, ah, antiquated, outdated, old, out of touch. But then Michaela comes. New, exciting, fun, nice package, nice ribbon, nice bow. We say, oh, this is the coolest thing in the world. Why hasn't the church been telling me about this stuff for years? I gotta go on Instagram, I gotta go on, on, on the news and watch this stuff. So to me, whether we're talking about mindfulness or intermittent fasting, or minimalism, or zero waste, or whatever we talk about. To me, the specific thing isn't as important as the principle. The principle being, maybe we should give a little bit more credence to the church's teachings. And maybe there's some wisdom in the ancient church teachings that the new fads aren't giving us. And that's why today's topic is no exception to that principle. Today's topic is something that has risen up over the last 10, 15 years, and is super popular in our society. From conmarine your clothes, to donating all your items to goodwill, to living in tiny homes, minimalism is all the rage. Everyone is trying to find out ways that they can do more with less. Get rid of stuff, declutter life, simplify life. And if you're older than me, this is a fascinating and, and starkly different world and different message that the world is giving than we're used to. And the more I looked into it, the more I wanted to take a step back before we get into the meat of the topic and look at how did we get to this point of minimalism? How did we get to the point that it's such a popular phenomenon in our society? And you actually have to go back a little bit. Its roots are a little bit deeper than the last 10, 15 years. Let me take you back 200 years to something called the Industrial Revolution. I don't know what that is, I just found out what that is, but basically that was a really, really big deal in our world, is basically it was a time when we went from handmade, like handmade products and singular products, when you make something one by one, you gotta sit there and you gotta put things together, to machine production, to now I can create 50 at a time instead of one at a time. So now you have the Industrial Revolution creating mass production. I can produce things in mass. I can produce goods and items and materials in mass. Like I said, that's 200 years ago. First 100 years in the early 20th century, what do you get? You get uh, two world wars. You get a depression. You get, we don't have the disposable income to, to consume these products. So what does that create? Overproduction. Mass production leading to overproduction. Fast forward to the late 20th century. In the 1990s, there's an economic boom across the world, mainly in this country, through mainly globalization technology. Right? There's more disposable income and more, dispos and more wealth in the world than at any other time in human history. So now I have the means to consume this mass production of goods and items and material. So now what do we see? We see McMansions being built in suburbs. We see clothes, fancy clothes, clothing lines being produced. We see gadget after gadget after gadget after technology after technology after technology being produced and consumed because now I have the means to produce and to consume these goods. Of course, that ends, as 
millennials would know that ends in 2007, 2008, with essentially the collapse of the global financial system, specifically here in the United States, the housing market crashes, right? So people in our generation are uh, graduating college at that point with a horrible economy, fewer jobs, more debt. So of course, the natural movement is to minimalism, is to get rid of the things that tie us down, is to get more freedom, more experiences, less stuff. It all makes sense when you take a step back and look at it in the context of where we've been over these last couple hundred years. But the question we want to answer today is, is this really a new trend, or is there something deeper to it? Is it really just the last 200 years, or has there been a message of minimalism being given for centuries? And now in order to do that, I wanted to define what minimalism is. Because you can go out and you can find a bunch of different definitions, and I wanted to define what is minimalism. Like, what is our working definition for, for what we're talking about today? So the definition that I decided is minimalism is the process to rid oneself of life's excess in order to identify what is essential in life. And now as I looked at that definition, something bugged me about it. Like that's the definition, if you look online, if you look at like the minimalist.com or .org or whatever, those are like the, the websites that, the, the definitions that modern minimalists use to define it. As I kept on looking at it, I wasn't satisfied. I thought to myself, is that really it? Like am I, like, I have too much respect for this group of people. Am I going to sit up here for a few minutes and really talk about this? Am I really going to talk about how to fold clothes and how to sell some stuff to Goodwill and then how to move and downsize your home? Like, is that really it? Or is there more? And it was only after I looked at the ancient church and what they taught about minimalism that I decided there is a much more important definition and a much more important message that we need to spend a few minutes on today. And this is our key thought for today. And I'm going to give you the key thought up front, and we'll unpack it over the next few minutes. Our key thought for today, and the basis for everything we're going to talk about, is that there is a direct correlation between the external materials in my life and my internal well-being and salvation. Now, that's a bold statement. Now, that's a statement, and that's a thought worthy of a few minutes on a Sunday. Wouldn't you agree? And trust me, if it was me talking, like just, just dumb Steve talking, I couldn't make that statement. Like I, if it was, say, Steve, give a talk minimalism, I would come up and show you how to fold the clothes and show you how to sell the stuff. That's not me talking. I came with reinforcements today. I came with backup today. And that's why I can make a bold statement. Because today, I'm going to talk less and I'm going to let someone else talk. There's an early church father, his name is St. John Chrysostom. He was an early church father in the 4th century in Constantinople. And he is revered as one of like the most dynamic authors, speakers in, in the ancient church. Okay? And his writings are famous throughout, uh, beyond the Orthodox Church. Okay? There were two main subjects that he spoke about or, or, or gave homilies on. One was on marriage and family life and, and, and kind of uh, the family unit. Then the second is on wealth, poverty, and simple living and giving. And those were like his two... Uh, kind of pet uh, subjects that he spoke about. And he's going to be our voice today. And he's the one that's going to show you that the idea of minimalism ain't something new. That this guy's been screaming it from the rooftops from the early 4th century on. You see, because 
I can give a talk on Christian minimalism. And if you search Christian minimalism online, you can get all of these resources and all of these pastors and whatever that talk about, you know, how Christianity fits into minimalism. But I'm not looking for some Johnny come lately to tell me about minimalism. I want to show you Johnny's been here forever. Did you catch that line? Okay. Johnny, St. John. That's the funniest line I'm going to give you. Okay, so. Okay. So I'm going to tell you, this is not something that's a new phenomenon, even in Christianity. So I'm going to let St. John speak today. And so with that as our backdrop, we're going to look at three different, we're going to look at kind of the dichotomy of three things we lose with a life of excess and three things we gain with a life of minimalism. We're going to look at them fairly quickly. Let's jump in. The first thing that we lose is we lose, there is a loss of control, or we lose control. When we give in to the temptation of wanting or needing more, there is a desire, there is a biological, physiological desire that overtakes us and consumes us. And the problem with that is there is, like I said, there's a psychological component to a relationship with material that now a decision point has been created that is against the normal process for making decisions. What does that mean? That means my decision point when I am faced with a decision, if I have a life of excess, that decision point now becomes how can I get more? How can I keep my stuff? How can I gain more? How can I increase my excess? New job, longer hours, more stress, less balance, great. Why? Because my decision point is how can I get more? It's changed my decision point. Going into debt, no problem. I'm able to obtain more that way. More time with kids, nope. Decision point is how can I get more? So more time with kids doesn't answer that criteria, doesn't fit that criteria. Dave Ramsey, who's a famous, uh, he's actually like a Johnny come lately. <laughs> uh, he's, he's a financial guy. He has a great quote, actually. It says, we buy things we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't like. Why do we do that? Because materialism is not an external decision. There is a psychological component to our relationship with material. A 1995 research study published in Developmental Psychology uh, uh, Publishing concluded that when people grow up in unfortunate social, social situations or experience the slightest bit of heartache or trouble, they become more materialistic as a way to adapt or cope. And, and they define trouble or the slightest bit of heartache ranging from anything as severe as child abuse to neglect by parents to as, as minimal or, or as nominal as growing up living paycheck to paycheck or any injury or traumatic event. And so consumerism, materialism, is our way to cope with hurt. And the problem with that is that study wasn't kept a secret from marketers and advertisers who began to use these messages to convince us that that hole inside of us could only be filled by stuff. And they used that to convince us. So as the hurt grows, as the pain grows, as the emptiness inside of us grows, what do we turn to? We turn to stuff. And we don't know why we do it. We don't know why we're drawn to it. But it's there. We use it as our coping mechanism. 
So even if we know we shouldn't accrue more, that didn't matter. There were insecurities, there were pains, and there were hurts inside of us, and they needed to be filled, and we were taught to fill them with consumerism, with materials. There's a documentary. We're going to look at some video clips. Okay, I love video clips. We're going to look at a couple of video clips. Today, there's a documentary on Netflix called Minimals. Right? And it's a really, really good documentary. It was done by these two guys who essentially went out and sought how to live a life of minimalism. And the beginning of this clip, we're going to look at this first clip, explains in better words than I can use this idea and this decision point and why we do the things we do and why we have this relationship. So let's look at this clip. At a time when people in the West are experiencing the best standard of living in history, why is it that at the same time there is such a longing for more? I think of that as a kind of biologically based delusional craving. That auto craving is a good strategy to keep animals alive, including early human animals, in really harsh conditions. But these days, today, it creates a disconnect. You're like a puppet whose strings should be pulled by Mother Nature and evolution, reaching back tens of millions of years. We still feel restless. We still are always scratching and clawing for more. It's why lottery winners are miserable. It's why homeowners have three-car garages. The first car creates an exponential, awesome rush of happiness and joy and utility. The second car comes about because we tire of the first car, and as humans, we're wired to become dissatisfied. It's an addiction, really. And we are encouraged to maintain the addiction through technology and information. Did you see a couple of, let me give you a couple of things they just said. Biologically based Delusional craving. Auto-craving, which leads to disconnect. He said we're, we, we act like a puppet. Biologically based, auto-craving. And the more we consume, the more disconnect grows. And see, these guys, Dan Harris and all these smart guys, they've been preaching this for a couple years. But I want to show you, before Dan Harris and these other smart guys figured this out, the church figured this relationship out well before it. Look at what St. Paul says in Romans chapter 7. He says, For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. What does St. Paul say? He says there's a biological thing. I don't want to do this. I don't want to buy this. I don't want to consume this. I don't want to live like this. I can't help myself. Something inside of me. There's a hurt. There's a pain. There's something. There's a hole that needs to be filled. And I keep on doing it, but I hate it. I know I shouldn't do it. I keep on doing it. More clearly, listen to what St. John says, our voice for today. By the way, these quotes are long, but the reason they're long is because they're so good. Every time I try to cut them off, they get better and better and better. So these are golden quotes. If you take anything from these, take these quotes. Listen to what St. John says. He says, those who love money are fierce in the pursuit of it, like wild animals pursuing their prey. They do not allow 
the ties of friendship to restrain them. They betray, cheat, or exploit their closest friends when there is gold or silver to be gained. Nor do they let the chains of conscience inhibit them. They learn to make their consciences as numb as fingers on a cold day. Wild animals pursuing their prey. Do you have that visual? Oh, just get out of my way, get out of my way. I'm so laser focused. A decision point with the bullseye on the thing that I don't want to do. That's the first thing, is a loss of control. Second thing that we lose, we lose contentment. With a life of excess, we lose contentment. By far, the most obvious point of this talk. I, I trust that this is a well-informed, this is a, a kind of respectable group that understands that there is an inverse relationship between the more I consume and my happiness in life. That there are, are, are tons of studies and tons of kind of empirical evidence that show that having more stuff doesn't make you happier. And if there's any need, just look at a macro level that currently there is more wealth, like I said, in any other moment in human history. And there are also the highest rates of depression, suicide, and anxiety. And the question is, why is that? Why is, this, why is there this inverse relationship between getting more stuff and having a more complicated, more excess life and less happiness. Like in, in the very minimum, there should be a neutral component to it. There should be a neutral relationship to it. Why does when I get more stuff makes me less happy? There's another clip I'm gonna play right now of a famous neuroscientist, his name is Sam Harris. Sam Harris, for all, like, for, for kind of all intents and purposes, is one of the kind of most intellectual, most regarded as one of the most respected authors and neuroscientists in the world. Kainstein Harris has kind of spent his life looking at how we are wired and how kind of physiologically we are created. Listen to what he says about the relationship between what makes us happy and having more stuff. It's natural to use other people's lives and even imagined lives, you know, the, the confections we see in advertisements as a yardstick. You open Vanity Fair or Esquire, and you see very sexy and glamorous lives. And then the projects, for most people, seems to become, you know, how can I get that or as, as close to that as I'm going to get? There can be an immense amount of dissatisfaction in trying to live that way. And many of us see no alternative but to live that way. My name is Sam Harris. I'm an author and neuroscientist. and I'm interested in how our growing understanding of ourselves scientifically can and must and, and really should change our conception of what it means to live a, a good life. Gratifying desires in a starkly materialistic way is really an interesting phenomenon. You have this thing that you were obsessed about, but then the new version comes out which is new and improved in a dozen ways. When it comes to the newest, hottest, most crave-worthy status symbols, you can bet customers will wait long hours to snag one. And now you no longer care about the one you have. In fact, the one you have is a source of dissatisfaction. I think we're confused about what's going to make us happy. 
many people think that material possessions are really at the center of the bullseye, and they expect that in gratifying each desire as it arises will somehow sunlight into a satisfying life. See, he talked about this cycle of I get something, I want it so bad, I want it so bad, I want it so bad, I get it. And now that thing has become a source of dissatisfaction. The thing I wanted so bad, but now I have it, now I hate it. And he talked about we're confused because we believe that gratifying each desire as it comes will summate into a satisfying life. And that's what we're, 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 we're taught, and that's the messages that we receive. You know what else I didn't tell you about Sam Harris? For those of you who know Sam Harris, you know I left this part out. Sam Harris is one of the most well-known atheists in the world. Sam Harris has also spent a lifetime trying to disprove religion and disprove specifically Christianity, the Abrahamic religions, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism. And the problem with Sam Harris, if you'll allow me, is if Sam Harris had looked to those guys that he was trying to disprove for so many years, he would see that what he just said nicely, but not that nicely, St. John Chrysostom was saying, Hundreds of years before him. And I think he said it a little bit better. Let's see what St. John says. He says, The man who owns much and is concerned only with the things he owns in spirit owns nothing. He cannot admire the beauty of any part of God's creation unless he is the legal owner. He cannot rejoice in the artistry of any building unless it belongs to him. Beauty and artistry belonging to other people simply evoke jealousy and envy in his breast. And even the things which he does own cause him no lasting pleasure, because as soon as he has acquired one thing, he is calculating how he can acquire another. When I think about St. John, I almost think like he's peeking into the Apple store with those people in line with the iPhone. He's saying these things. Because as soon as he has acquired one thing, he's calculating how he can acquire another. What a miserable life St. John just described. A person, a person who can't appreciate anything unless he is the rightful legal owner of it. Oh, look, that building's so beautiful. Ah, I could do better. Oh, that, you know, shirt is great. Well, I'm going to get a better shirt. What a miserable life. It's like a guy who needs to put his name in golden letters on a building just to appreciate it, okay? What a terrible, miserable life. The thing I wanted so badly, now I hate it. St. John said it well before we could ever figure it out. That's why materialism robs us of happiness, is because inherently it creates a comparison. Inherently, it creates a desire for more. So you have a loss of control, a loss of contentment, and finally, you have a loss of clarity. Now, if you want to put a dash, you can put clarity. You can also put margin, okay? But... I like the alliteration with the C's, but we're also going to talk about more. So I have a confession to make. I have a confession to make. Okay, y'all ready for my confession? A few years back, I fell in love with a woman who wasn't my wife. Okay, everyone's getting ready. I fell in love with a woman who wasn't my wife. And the problem is, my wife would come home, and the bedroom door would be closed. <laughs> And she would peek in and she would listen to me, say, you know what, I love you. And you've been so good to me. And I want to keep you forever. And she would open the door and I would be talking to my favorite shirt. 
And now the woman I fell in love with was a woman named Marie Kondu. And if you don't know who that is, you are really confused about my marriage and about the health of my marriage. But Marie Kondu is a woman who wrote a book that I read several years ago called The Life-Changing Art, sorry, The Life-Changing Math of Tidying Up. And it is this, this short little lady, and her whole premise of her book is that we need to simplify our lives. We need to get rid of the excess. We need to get rid of everything that is cluttering our lives. And we need to only keep things that give us joy. So I read this book, and she literally said to take every shirt and every piece of clothing and hold it up and say, do you give me joy? And you can hug it, you can squeeze it, you can kiss it. I loved it because I discovered that nothing gives me joy, and I got rid of everything. I love the principle that she was teaching about because she had a great principle, which I think is very, very important, which is this, which is a lack of margin ultimately leads to a loss of clarity. When I lose margin in my life, and we've done a whole series on margin and burnout. When I lose margin, then I lose clarity. So this lady, this very famous lady, Marie Kondo, they turned her book into a Netflix show. And I watched the show, and basically every episode, she goes through this process of decluttering and simplifying their life with a different person. So she'll go through it with like a young family, with like a, an elderly family, with a single person, and all these different people. She goes through this Marie process is what she calls it. And there's one episode that I'm going to show a quick clip of where she starts this process, goes through this process with a young family, two young kids. Okay, now we're going to look at the clip. And this clip is like the before Marie Kondu process. Before the Marie process, this is what their life looked at. And I want you to notice a couple things with this clip. Does he look like a guy who wants to be a bad dad? Does he sound like a guy who wants to be neglectful? Does he sound like a guy who made a willing decision of, I don't want to give my kids the best of me? No. He wants to do the best, but he has no margin. And because he has no margin, he's lost the clarity of what's important. I think if St. John were around today, he would look at this guy, and he would tell him this. He says, the hearts of the rich 
are so preoccupied with maintaining and enhancing their wealth that they have neither time nor space to consider matters of religion and morality. Their eyes become blind to the suffering they cause, even to members of their own families, and their ears deaf to the cries of those whose lives are ruined by them. They imagine themselves to be free, pursuing their own interests without constraint, yet in truth, they are slaves to their own greed. I know that sounds harsh, but think about the dad in this video. He didn't choose to be absent. He didn't choose to not be the best dad in the world. He just lost the clarity of what's important. He lost sight of what was really needed to be focused on. And when he came to that realization, you saw the pain in his eyes. You saw that realization of, I'm not giving them my best. What I actually wanted to do and what I set out to do, I'm not achieving. That loss of control that we talked about earlier. But my question for us today is, what realization do we need to come to? That maybe we've lost some clarity in our decision points because we don't have margin. Whose suffering are we causing because our eyes are blinded by the excess that we have in life? Maybe even members of our own family. Whose cries are our ears deaf to because we are so consumed by stuff? A loss of control, a loss of contentment, and a loss of clarity. That's what's lost with a life of excess, with a life of consumers. Now let's look at the good side of what is gained. And the best thing is the modern fad can't explain this part. We're going to run through this part quickly, but the modern fad, I can't pull anything out of this because they can't teach you what's gained on the inside, that internal well-being and salvation, which was from our key thought today. Because if you really want to know what's gained, you've got to look to the ancient church to teach us what's gained with a life of minimalism. Because the foundation of the church's teachings comes from our Lord Jesus Christ himself, who said in Matthew 19, he said, Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. So you want to know what's gained? You know what's gained? Perfection. Who said that? Jesus. The question is, how do we get there? What are the three things that are gained when I choose voluntarily choose to live a life of minimalism. And just, just a caveat, I'm not talking about how to live minimally, right? And so every single person here has their own circumstance, and you, I, I, believe me, I, I just, I probably should have said this at the beginning, I'm not knocking anything about anything, okay? I, I don't live in a hut, like I have phones, like that's not what I'm saying. Everyone has to look in the mirror and decide, how can I live a minimal life? I remember my wife Last year, I think last year, came home from work one day. My wife has crazy ideas, right? Everybody know that. My wife has crazy ideas. She, I came home from work one day. She packed us into the car. She said, we're going on an adventure. We go to an adventure. She shows, we, we go up to this neighborhood in D.C., one of the worst neighborhoods in D.C. She takes me to this plot of land, empty plot of land. And she says, congratulations, we're going to build a tiny home here. And I said, you know what you don't remember is to build a tiny home, you have to have a tiny family. Okay, we have a lot of tiny people in our family, so we can't build a tiny home. Okay, so I'm not saying you have to go move to a tiny home. Everyone needs to look at themselves and see how can I live a minimal life. Three things that are gained with a life of minimalism. Very quickly, the first one is generosity. Generosity. 
I know this doesn't really seem like something to be gained, like something exciting. Like, congratulations, now that you've chosen minimalism, you can give away more of your money, more of your stuff. I know that's not the most exciting thing, but it's because we don't understand the cycle of generosity. We really don't understand what's entailed when I voluntarily give up what I have to help others. Look at what St. John describes about generosity. He says, entrust all your wealth to God, because then it is protected against all who want to steal or destroy it. He gives some people more than they need, not that they can enjoy great luxury, but to make them stewards of his bounty on behalf of orphans, the sick, and the crippled. If they are good stewards, they will become rich in spirit, their hearts filling with joy. Question, why do you have what you have? The answer to that has nothing to do with you. Why do you have what you have? And whatever answer you come up with, if it has anything to do with you, that's not the right answer. According to this guy, not according to me. And that, to me, should be great news to all of us. That all of us here have been blessed with excess and material and stuff. And why? It has been given to us for God. It has been given us by God for God. Like the FUBU thing. It's been given to us by God for God for his work. And so as long as there is one orphan, one crippled, one sick person, one person in need, our material has an aim and a purpose outside of ourselves. That's the good news of this message. You see, sometimes I, I worry that in, in, a, in a community like this, in one of the most affluent communities in America, in, in some of the richest counties where we live in, especially in the church, there's the temptation to enter into that prosperity gospel country club which says, oh, praise God, I got a new job. God is so good. Oh, I got that new car, and it, it allows me to get to church five minutes earlier. Oh, that's amazing, wonderful. And those are the worst types of churches that we have. Because it is the exact opposite of what St. John said. He says, every time you get something new, it's not for your own benefit, it's not for your own comfort, it's not for your own pleasure. It's for the sick, the orphans, and the crippled. So I always think to myself, as long as Arlington, Virginia, or Washington, D.C., or wherever you live, has a sick person, an orphan, a crippled, and a poor person, our work is not done. Not every gift or possession you own is given to you by God. I'm sorry, for yourself, but is given to you by God for those less fortunate. That's the first thing we gain. We gain generosity. Second thing we gain is gratitude. Gratitude. The church in its wisdom has always taught us that the greatest antidote to unhappiness and discontent is a life of gratitude. But as you know, in the Orthodox Church and the Coptic Orthodox Church specifically, every liturgical service, every prayer, every everything is begun with a specific prayer, the prayer of thanksgiving. And it reminds us that we give God thanks in any condition, in whatever condition, and in every condition. St. John says happiness can only be achieved by looking inward and learning to enjoy whatever life has. And this requires transforming greed into gratitude. You see the dichotomy of what we're talking about. Discontent, what we talked about earlier, is all about looking outward, looking externally at what he has or what she's wearing or what they have. But gratitude and happiness are all about looking inward. 
There's always this dichotomy between the two. And I love the phrase that St. John uses here. He says, what does he say? Learning to enjoy whatever life has. Learning to enjoy. Does that mean that St. John had the best of the best in everything? No. Does that mean that we can only enjoy the best of the best? No. We learn to enjoy. We learn to enjoy. Maybe this isn't the best uh, shirt. Maybe this isn't the, the best uh, bank account. I learned to enjoy it. It's like you learned to like. I look at my kids. Maybe my kid's not the best. I learned to enjoy my kid, okay? I learned. I have to. I have no other choice at this point, okay? So I learned to enjoy the things that God has given me. Instead of needing the newest, the latest, the greatest, I learned to enjoy the things that I have. So that was gratitude. So we gain generosity. We gain gratitude. And lastly, and most importantly, we gain freedom. I couldn't find another G, so you could put guff freedom if you want. We talked about the loss of control. We talked about the loss of clarity. But minimalism to me is the ability to live freely. The ability to detach of things that have enslaved me and live a life of freedom. We watched that clip from the Marie Kondo show about that dad, right? I told you that was the before before they went through this process, before they simplified their lives, before they tried to become minimalist. That's how he looked. Remember how he looked? Don't forget the pain in that dad's eyes. Let's look at the after. Let's look at now, after having gone through this process of minimalism, how does he look now? I love how open they are. I've noticed a difference in him. Even just his demeanor. We haven't even met people on each other and actually have been enjoying our time. that clip outside of that adorable girl. What I love about that clip is those two people 
you can tell, are completely different. Their relationships are different. Their parenting is different. Their house is different. Everything about them is different. But you know what else I noticed? They have no idea why that is. They can't explain it. Like she says, my heart is racing. And he says, like, I'm just, I'm so excited. I get goosebumps. He doesn't know how to explain it. And the reason is, it's because he doesn't know what the ancient church has been teaching for years and years and years. Here's a quote, not from St. John, but from the original minimalist, St. Anthony, desert father, okay, come on, people. Listen to what St. Anthony says. He says, regard as free, not those whose status makes them outwardly free, but those who are free in their character and conduct. For we should not call men truly free when they are wicked and dissolute, since they are slaves to worldly passions. Here's the important part. Freedom and happiness of soul consists in genuine purity and detachment from transitory things. Freedom and happiness of soul consists in genuine purity and detachment from transitory things. There is a freedom. There is a breath. There is this renewal of life that this guy experienced. And the reason he did is because he finally was able to detach from the transitory things in his life, from the things that had been consuming the margins in his life, from the things that had been consuming his mind and all the clutter. And once he decluttered his life, he received freedom. So we gain generosity, we gain gratitude, and we gain freedom. Last thing I'll say. I want to do a little exercise. Two weeks ago, we did, uh, the talk was on, one of the first trends was on mindfulness, right? So I want to practice an exercise in mindfulness, if you'll allow me. I would like to ask everyone to close your eyes. Close your eyes for a second. Okay, with your eyes closed, I want you to imagine your life. Imagine your life a year from now, or two years from now, or even five years from now. Imagine that life. What does it look like? Now imagine that life with less, less stuff, less clutter, less stress, and debt, and discontent, and less distractions. Keep your eyes closed. And now imagine that same life with more. More time, more meaningful relationships, more growth and contributions. A life of passion unencumbered by the trappings of the chaotic world around you. You can open your eyes. What you're imagining is not this faraway life, is not this unattainable life, but it's a real life. It's a real life based on an intentional decision. It's not a perfect life, it's not an easy life, but it's a simple life. A simple life based on an intentional decision. A simple choice to love people and use things. The opposite never works. Let's stand up for a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, our dear Heavenly Father, for this day. We thank you for allowing us to come here. We thank you for all the, the, the material and all the things that you've given us for the sake of your holy name. We ask you, Lord, that you would transform the things in our life 
that would be given to others, things that would create healing, that would create uh, to help those in need, to, to loosen the chains of, of, of injustice in this world. We ask you, Lord, that you would remove the, the, the stuff in our life, that, that you would give us more clarity, more wisdom, more margin to be able to enjoy the things that you have prepared for those who love your holy name. And we ask all these things in your mighty name, through the intercessions of all your saints. Here's when we say thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever. Amen.